You're about to listen to episode three of What Are You Making Me Watch? You've made an excellent decision. So, with this warning in mind, make another one. This episode will contain spoilers for episode three of Band of Brothers. Hello, welcome to episode three of What Are You Making Me Watch? This week we're watching episode three of (laughs) Band of Brothers, Karen Town. We'll be talking about Blyde Sphere, Spears' speech, and what Band of Brothers teaches us about men. Oh, men. (laughs) Men. (laughs) So many men. (laughs) And I speak to Matthew Brown from American Battlefields and Monuments Commission about how thousands of American servicemen came to be buried just up the road from Paul and I at the American Cemetery. They did, right on our doorstep. It's a lovely place, isn't it? It is a lovely place. We'll We'll get to that. Plot summary of episode three, or Bad Day at the Café Normandy. And Easy Company are slowly turning up at the muster point, including sensitive soul Albert Blythe, for whom the next few weeks of bloody carnage proves too much. Winters gets hit by a ricochet. Lipton gets hit in the face and terrifyingly close to his nuts. Talbot gets bayoneted by one of his own guys. And Tipper... Well, what happens to him is just horrible. The episode ends back in England where Donald Malarkey gets lumbered with an incredibly sad and expensive laundry bill. But there's not even time to process that because here come more orders. But apart from that, it all goes terribly well. (laughs) (laughs) So shall we start with Blythe? Yes, Albert. I think he's a really good portrait of what happens when you just can't cope when you lose your head in a war situation which of course makes him surely the most relatable character on screen because I'm sure most of us suspect that that is absolutely who we would be in that situation yeah and he's not alone is he because you know there is a point at which when they go to attack the town of Carantan where they all hide in the ditch where they're shot at and they will just go no thank you so I think it happens to a lot of them or in fact probably all of them but he's the one in which it manifests in this sort of physical way they call it hysterical blindness but I mean it's anything but hysterical isn't it they should call it entirely reasonable blindness (laughs) yeah (laughs) totally relatable (laughs) blindness yeah I feel the script has you know there's there has nothing but sympathy and empathy for him doesn't it you, you can imagine how a character like that would have been uh, played in a kind of Second World War propaganda film. He'd have been the lily-livered coward, letting all the chaps down. But, um, you know, from, from this remove, he's absolutely um, has our sympathy um, from the start, doesn't he? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And he does seem just to be a gentle soul, doesn't he? When they're all sitting around discussing Spears, and I have more stuff to say about Spears, we'll come back to that. When they're sitting around discussing Spears, he gives the the perfectly reasonable answer as, I I wasn't there, I don't know. He almost seems to be a man just, like, of a different time. Really sort of small-town, old-fashioned. And Winters comes to talk to him. Winters is just made of magic, isn't he, in this episode? When when he cures his blindness. Yeah, cures his hysterical blindness. I kind of feel like... I kind of feel like I would, you know, that maybe there's something about Winters that... The reassurance of him is so huge that you kind of feel like, not I would, although that is a different conversation, 
Um, it would it would work in many ways. He's Jesus, basically, isn't he? Yeah. He, he cures the blind. Well, he's funny. He yeah. does get he does get his own episode. So perhaps we will talk about him in more depth coming up. He does seem to have just the universal devotion of all of his men, and I can't think of any other sort of circumstance. The only person that even comes close to that, that I can think of off the top of my head, is Gus in The Wire. In that almost every journalist I know holds him up as the one person you'd really love to yeah. work for. But going back to Real Winters, that actually does seem to be the case. That doesn't yeah. seem to be them laying it on thick. It seems to be seems to be generally he was incredibly well regarded. Yeah, I mean, he was your proper, your proper American hero in all the most positive connotations of that, isn't he? And the fact that he's he's kind of strong, but he's not a dick about it, is he? He's strong but empathetic, and I think that's a hugely attractive combination, isn't it? He's got that. Um, I'm fanboying about him now. Damien Lewis, he does have that that twinkle in his eye. He just seems like um, he seems like a sensitive soul who can wear the clothes of of being a soldier who needs to get the job done. Yeah, key to this is three interactions that Bly has sort of on the sort of front. Mm. One with Harry Welsh, one with Ronald Spears, and one with Winters. And Winters is, at at that point, he's all sort of gung-ho. He's like, come on, fire gun, fire gun. So he is a man of action. (laughs) He is a man of action. Yeah, but when he needs to be. Exactly that. But we got to see like quite a few views of war in it. I said this in the when we were talking you know, episode one, maybe about how you got to see some people's philosophy of war played out in this. And you do get a couple of really interesting philosophies of war. I mean, Harry Welsh, who is one of my favourite characters in it, because he's the cynic and I love a cynic. It's the, the very sarcastic war is hell. This is a game. We are pieces being moved around on a board. Spears comes in with something so nihilistic that I actually have it written down here. Yeah. Which is the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. Yeah. The sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier is supposed to function without mercy, without compassion, without remorse. All war depends on it. Yeah, I mean, I wrote down exactly the same speech. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's quite striking, isn't it? You hit, you hit in the ditch because you because you think there's still hope. <laughs> there yeah. is no hope, and uh, and so it's that. People with nothing to lose are dangerous idea, isn't it? It's the lethal weapon doctrine. It, yeah, he's mentally, he's already dead. So so he puts himself in danger because he's nothing to lose and he can take other lives because he's nothing to lose. That's that's the way he's mentally going through this process, isn't it? Spears is an incredible... He actually, I think, is my favourite character in this and I know it probably seems surprising to you now having not seen more of it. But he really does come into his own in later episodes. And he it's precisely because he is such... He does seem to have a depth in this that, that comes out that perhaps other characters don't get the opportunity to have. But also kind of gets played for laughs quite a lot as well. He is a complete sort of clusterfuck of a character and I really enjoy that. I mean, does he seal Blythe's fate with that little uh, homily he gives? Because... He says this to Blythe, and then Blythe, you know, later volunteers to check out the farmhouse, lead, lead the patrol, and and obviously pays the price for that. So I wonder if you're almost meant to think that Blythe has taken on board this little speech and is now kind of acting slightly more bravely slash recklessly, um, and then 
and then cops it because of it. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. It's worth adding, and I did say we weren't going to sit and pick out the historical inaccuracies in it. We were just going to look at it as a television programme. Mm. But actually, this is one of the key mistakes in Band of Brothers, is that Bly didn't die as a result of his wounds. Um, oh. But he did lose contact with everybody in Easy Company. I mean, obviously, didn't have Facebook in 1945 <laughs> after the war ended. That's probably why they were all nicer people than we are. But, yeah, that was the impression that they had. But it was later corrected. But, oh, right. but nonetheless... Yeah, he died in 67, I've just uh, mm. just seen that. that uh, well... But nonetheless, in terms of this narrative, I think it's yeah. spot on. I think Spears persuade him because Spears is the perfect soldier in many ways in this uh, because yeah. he has accepted that and he is fearless. Nixon makes the mm. same point in a in a kind of roundabout way doesn't he about how Harry's crazy forever believing he'll get back to England. Yeah. Again he's he's accepted that you know I, I, I'm here I'm going to die and anything else is a bonus. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah absolutely. I mean Nixon is also quite the cynic and also a character I really like. On first watch, I thought that <laughs> I thought that was Ronald again, which means I'm still having trouble distinguishing between these men in helmets, and I'm I'm wondering at what point that's that that is going to stop. Now, you said earlier about how uh, Blythe was very relatable. Actually, to be honest, Percanti, who is the guy who is collecting the watches, and I've got more to say on the watches in a bit, but I actually find him quite relatable because he does it right, provided he's allowed to have a ten minute moan. Every so often, pretty much every episode, he gets a real fucking bitch and moan. And I think that that of all of the personalities, that's me. Yeah, I'll do it. But am I allowed five minutes in which I go, I don't want to do it. I don't like it. Get out of your system. Yeah. And then just go and do it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that is highly relatable. He reminded me a bit of the kind of Milo minder minder thing from Catch-22 with uh, he's, uh, he's He's got a good eye on a war profit, profit game, hasn't he? Yeah. I haven't got a quiz for you this week. Oh. I know, because there weren't any faces in there that I don't. I think we hadn't already seen before. But I do have a sort of mini quiz for you, because there's a point at this. They get rescued by some Sherman tanks. Oh, yeah. Which turn up and are literally going south like Sherman. <laughs> so, Paul, who are Sherman tanks named after? Um, General Sherman. That is correct. And he was... <laughs> he was the general... In some sort of war, uh, civil war, American civil war. That is correct. What side yeah. was he on? He was uh, <laughs> um, he was on the side of the north. That is correct. <laughs> yeah. What city did he famously torch? Oh, famously um, Detroit. <laughs> it's a bit. It's a bit north. He was way off. He was way off the map. He he was supposed to be down in I don't know Mississippi or something, but um, yeah, he he went wrong. Atlanta. Oh, Atlanta. Atlanta is what happens at the end of Gone with the Wind. Oh right. Oh yeah. Okay. Should probably watch that, shouldn't I? No. (laughs) I know it's problematic now, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Also, just like not that great. And really, really long. Oh my god! Epically long. So, I mentioned it earlier, Lipton had a, a near miss. I mean, is that men's greatest fear, really? 
being shot in the bollocks. Just losing them. Just losing them. I mean, that was a genuine look of terror on his face. <laughs> Men are terribly badly designed. Yes. I mean, yeah, it's sort of all hanging out there, isn't it? If I'm honest, I've never worried about losing them, but then I've never really been in a situation where people are shooting at me, <laughs> which, if any point was going to bring out that terror, I suspect it was then, yeah. I mean, I think, I think if I'm honest, and, and, you know, I do have the privilege of already having had children, so I don't have to worry about it from that perspective, I'd still more worry, worry about my head and face. Really? Yeah. I'd, I'd hate to lose my face more than my uh, testicles. I'm going to put that out there. Fun TV fact, although you never watched it, maybe that I'll make you watch it in a later series, mm. uh, in Mad Men. Bert Cooper lost his testicles in the first World War. Oh, God. And how did that impact on his personality? Well, he always seemed quite nice. Mm. Fair enough, maybe, yeah. yeah. Well, maybe... I recently read a book about testosterone, actually. I learnt a huge amount about castrating men. A, wor- a worrying amount about how to castrate a man. I've never been more grateful to be doing this over Zoom. (laughs) (laughs) So what does Band of Brothers say about men? Do you mean men in general, or what does it say about the idea of manhood? Um, Well, a bit of both. I guess what I was thinking was, it's fascinating, isn't it, to consider how much men might have changed, uh, either evolved or devolved, depending on your point of view, in the years since the Second World War. I, I think that's happened in ways both good and bad. I think we've been encouraged to sort of confront and challenge traditional ideas of masculinity, which is positive. And, and obviously, since the 60s, we've also challenged long-held ideas of authority and deference, which, again, I think is good. But I do wonder, not to get too Daily Mail about it, whether we haven't also become more self-absorbed, more entitled, more cosseted in quotes and perhaps less engaged with the idea of public service so I just think it would be fascinating to know how conscription would work today because you know could they have made another greatest generation out of me and my friends watching Star Wars and reading our Doctor Who comics well into middle age and would I send my sons off to war no fucking way I'd pay pay the first guy that offered to smuggle them to Switzerland or whatever Mm. and so I think that this is quite interesting that that greatest generation masculinity works as a positive in some ways doesn't it and we maybe we've lost some of that but then we've gained things on the on swings and roundabouts yeah that is really interesting the ken burns documentary about vietnam which i'm just going to go ahead and assume that you never watched i don't like war hannah make love not war <laughs> not with no bollocks you won't <laughs> oh yeah fair point <laughs> There's a guy in that who went to Canada to escape subscription. I mean, I could clearly understand why that would be. It was incredibly Mm. dangerous. But on top of that, you know, people who came back from Vietnam, there were other effects. You know, a huge amount of people came back from Vietnam drug addicted. I mean, it was not a great war. But he actually in it says that it was the bravest thing he ever did was to leave and go to Canada because it changed the way that people thought about him forever. In ways that were positive as well, then? No, in, in, in ways that were negative. I mean, how it would impact on, on like, his parents to know oh, in a see, small yeah. town to, that they would have a son who was seen as, like, someone who wouldn't go to war. Uh, and he felt it was, like, a really brave thing to do, whereas 
going to war would have been actually the easier thing to do, as in the actual going bit would have been easier. But then when you got there, it would have been absolutely terrible. So, yeah, yeah, it it is really interesting. I mean, I I don't know. I suppose what it says about men is that they're all different. And yes, they all are desperately... Hashtag not all men. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And they're all trying, like, to come to terms with this thing that's happened to them. And the only thing that unites them is the idea that, that this thing needs to be done. You know, yes. and that that clearly at some point Blythe signed up. So at some point he must have thought he had it in him. So I suppose maybe it also suggests what, what none of us know what we're talking about until you're in it, until you're yeah. actually there, how you're going to react. And I say that as someone who chased a mugger. And I oh, mean, yeah. you know me, I would, ne- I would never do that. <laughs> I would literally <laughs> never do that. And yet when... No. when until you do. I mean, I'm not suggesting it's the same as taking a, t- a town under and a heavy fire, but yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So that that taking of the town, I felt like that really raised the stakes this week. Which I know sounds ridiculous because it's the Second World War. The stakes weren't exactly low, and last week was actual D-Day, which again, quite a stressful day at, at work by anybody's reason. I hope this isn't an inaccurate representation, but Easy Company's service on D-Day felt slightly on the margins. I mean, like a pretty terrifying margins, but it, it felt like the main event was happening, you know, off screen or on, on say, Private Ryan's screen, maybe. But here the regiment seems to take a real hit in the taking of the town. There's some really brutal dispatches in the gunfight, and it just feels like the price they're paying starts to starts to become much more more evident. They're just getting picked off all over the place, aren't they? Mm, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty terrifying. And again, it's, uh, I think we mentioned this before, but it's the almost casual nature of it that's so shocking. It's like one moment there's a guy there and then then he's gone and, and then you move on. It's, uh, you, you know, um, it's sort of di- diametric opposite to Oliver Stone's approach in Platoon. You know where Charlie Sheen's gets killed and it's all in slow-mo and there's barbers and dads over strings and all that kind of isn't, going on. Isn't that Willem Dafoe? That is Willem Dafoe, you're right, yeah. Uh, and, and there's, it, but it's, yeah, it's slow motion, isn't it? Mm. There's, there's the Adagio over strings going and, and this is just seems to be completely opposite than that. It's almost kind of cinema verite in the way that one minute they're just, you know, there and then their leg's gone or they're gone. But then you just move on. There's no time. You just move on because that, that, that's how it is. Although that said, some of it is quite cinematic, isn't it? Like the, there was the soldiers walking in silhouette along the burning river. Mm. It's quite actually quite painterly, almost. And I suppose that is an interesting creative decision about how beautiful should you make scenes of war and carnage. I have this conversation quite a lot because I mean we both review telly. I don't mind violence in TV, provided violence looks like violence. I don't yeah. like, I mean, I don't like stuff like, you know, that has the sort of A-team level of violence where people yes. are just left tied up at the side of the road at the end <laughs> of it after thousands of bullets have been shot. Yeah, You know, the tiniest thing, like, I've done something to my elbow and you've got something wrong with your, your leg at the minute. <laughs> yeah. Like, the tiniest thing can really fuck you up. And yet, yes. and yet people are just, like, bloodless stuff, I just find to be just ludicrous. Yeah. You know, if somebody's been shot, I mean, I'm all for the uh, Sam Peckinpah. Throw as many bullets as you can, as long as you say someone's fingers being blown off, because that happens. Exactly. And actually, what's what's really interesting in Band of Brothers, and we saw someone lose a leg, for example, mm. this this week. We also saw, like I say, Tipper be just blown to shit, and it was horrible. Yeah. 
absolutely horrible is there are points of which that's almost more scary yeah i don't know why i'm laughing that's almost more scary than the idea of being hit and killed the idea of thinking you know just bits of you could be knocked off you at any point yeah yeah no absolutely that is it is it is terrifying and yeah i I agree you can't have the sanitized version of it a really famous bit of the a-team where a helicopter crashed into a cliff and they all crawled out going oh (laughs) that that really smarted (laughs) um (laughs) yeah you've got it the thing if we're going to go with the a-team the thing i don't understand is this guy's been to vietnam right and he needs mental health and they keep busting him out for fuck's sake (laughs) the guy's deep murdoch is deeply deeply traumatized by the events of the vietnam war and his mates won't let him get treatment (laughs) no in fact they think he's the perfect guy to come on some sort of commando mission (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah yes good point yeah Going back to your point about manhood, there is something in this that, that, that happens that's quite interesting. It's not said, it's implied in this. Is the thing where Picanti, who I mentioned earlier, he's been stealing watches. Mm. And there's something quite yuck about that in many ways. There's something that seems really mercenary about like stripping. Now, when they're stripping guns off dead bodies, fair enough, because they mm. needed them. But to be stripping personal possessions. And yet... When Blythe shoots the guy who's got Edelweiss on him, taking that in mm. some ways seems to be presented as a sort of valorous thing yeah. to do. And I think it's quite interesting, that idea of what's the difference really between those two things? Yeah, I guess, yeah. Is it is it to do with um, monetary value? One you're kind of taking as a scalp of the enemy and the other you'll be sticking on eBay later. Yeah, maybe, yeah. or just dishing yeah. it out to someone who hasn't got a watch. Yeah, or trading it <laughs> yeah. for cigarettes. Yeah, although again, yeah, what? Because a watch probably quite handy in the uh, heat of battle, isn't it? I would imagine in the nineteen forties. Yeah, you know, if you're a working class person who's gone to war, your watch is probably incredibly personal thing to you. Just making me think of. Pulp Fiction, where uh, he doesn't carry the <laughs> yeah. watch up his ass for, <laughs> for five years. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Kirkley, have you got a character yet that you you think I like him? Um, I'm really still at the trying to work out who everybody is phase. I think. I mean, I did really relate hard to uh, poor Albert, and I'm actually very pleased that you've just you've just told me that his condition was upgraded to alive. <laughs> <laughs> Like the Duke of Edinburgh until the last time it went, when when it went back to to dead again yeah, to dead yeah yeah who's your fave at this point like I say I've probably got having seen it I've probably could narrow it down to maybe five um, right there are so many of them it, it, it's difficult I am a big fan of Ronald Spears because yeah. because of things that are coming up later he is actually a lot of fun as a character given how he first enters this or maybe that's a spoiler it doesn't matter donald malarkey seems to be a, like a, a just an honest he's the guy at the end who goes to collect all that stuff played by scott grimes oh, yeah. you know how you and i said that we'd like to live next door to ted to ted Hastings. ted because, oh yeah because ted, ted would come out and help you when your fence blew down <laughs> kind of, uh, there's something there's something about donald malarkey that's just so yeah just just good neighbor about him that yeah, I like him a lot. Yeah. Nixon I like, but for reasons that will become clear right. to you, certainly. 
as time progresses because Nixon has a, a particular storyline that is always fascinating to me. I mean, it, Winters is just, I would happily... Live next door to him. Yeah, I would happily live next door to Winters. <laughs> yeah, you might even knock through. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't need to knock through. I just have to beat on the, the wall for long enough shouting, stories, stories, stories. stories. Do you want to watch Saving Private Ryan with me again? <laughs> oh, no, Hannah, I'm tired. <laughs> And I should point out as well that 16 minutes into episode three, a woman finally appears in Band of Brothers for two seconds, cowering on a cafe floor. And then there are a couple more women later on folding some clothes. So again, it's in no way a criticism of Band of Brothers. That's just how it was, isn't it? There are. Coming up next week, though, there are actual women with actual things that I can tell you about them. Really? Yeah. Oh, good. It's not Kitty designing her wedding dress, is it? <laughs> no. And by the way, I should say I was—I did smile at that cafe being called Cafe de Normandy. Like they've got just got the one, <laughs> like a Cafe of Surrey or something. But I did look up whether it might have been real, and I don't think it is. But you can buy several model kits of it from Bands of Brothers fan sites. So uh, something to, to do over the holidays. <laughs> I might get myself an Airfix uh, Cafe de Normandy. <laughs> <laughs> even know you anymore (laughs) Paul we mentioned earlier the American Cemetery just up the road from us what a lovely place it is are you a Mm. regular visitor I've been a few times I took my mum and dad up there once as well I just think you know for something that's obviously a monument to so much tragedy it is a very beautiful and calming and sobering space isn't it yeah I I really like it there partly because yeah like all of the things you just said and also it's on a hill which is pretty rare around here so you actually get quite a nice view but I also find that it's actually a really actively engaging place I have never been there I mean I've taken all visitors there I've just gone for a wander on my own I find many people in Cambridge who tell me they've never been and I'm like Mm. come on then let's go Every single time someone appears and gives you some information about the place in a really enthusiastic way. And I took my nephew there once. He was about three or four. And he was at that age where everything was brilliant. Like, yeah, brilliant, brilliant. I said, do you like it here? And he said, I love it with the dead people. (laughs) And at that point, (laughs) at that point, a guy came out and gave him some a little American flag and a little British flag that they were planning on putting on the graves for, I think, Memorial Day or mm. something. And he gave one to my nephew. And my nephew just ran round with both of these flags in his hand, <laughs> shouting, I love it here with the dead people. <laughs> and they and they found it, they found that really endearing. So rather than really yeah. disrespectful. So I actually think it's not a sombre place. It's actually quite a interactive historical place. So you're saying if you can't afford uh, Peppa Pig World, then a day out of the American <laughs> country. Fun for all the family. <laughs> Yeah, God, that poor kid. That's where he got God. taken by. Let's go and stay with your auntie. And she'd take yeah. to like really morbid places. No, but like I say, not morbid at all. But anyway, Matthew Brown, who is based in Cambridge, I had a chat with him about how the American Cemetery came to be. So, should we hear that? Let's hear that. I wanted to start by asking, do we know how many Americans were actually based in the, well, I would say the UK, but it was largely England, wasn't it, during the Second World War? 
that would be almost an impossibility to pin down because of how fluid the forces flowed around. Uh, between the, the land forces, the air forces, and the naval forces, you were constantly seeing troops flow in and out. Uh, think, for example, as those army troops, those land forces came across the Atlantic Ocean, and they based themselves very temporarily in Western England in uh, 1942. But then they very quickly got back on ships and they went down to the Mediterranean and Northern African uh, battlefields where they, uh, they fought for several years before coming back yet again. The whole time we had air forces uh, flowing in and moving around. Um, so we don't have an exact number, but in general, what we consider our peak to be is, is, a, is about 1.5 million American wow. soldiers. Yes. It's no wonder that British men fighting abroad were kind of terrified by such a huge influx of men. Yes, a uh, huge influx by numbers, but also by, uh, by, by the means that the American soldiers brought with them. Yeah. Um, big, big paychecks and, and a lot of home rations that didn't exist here in the UK at the time. Yeah, they, they had a huge cultural impact, didn't they? Yes, yes, we did. And in fact, um, both positive and negative, we, brought, we exported the Americana that you uh, know of today that that you see in Hollywood and uh, all of the cultural differences that uh, there exist between the Americans and the British people. Uh, But we also brought some of our, some of our negative trends over across the Atlantic. And we, uh, we tried to implant a little bit of an American culture over here. And there were some sticky points with that. So in this episode, we see a lot of American bodies and, I wanted to know how, if you were killed on D-Day or, in fact, anywhere in Europe during the Second World War, what what happened to you? Where did your body go temporarily? And then how did it end up being moved to one of the cemeteries like the one that is in Cambridge? It's a fantastic question that um, has two different answers, depending on where you're standing as a soldier. Um, If you're here in England... Uh, we're behind the lines. We're not in combat uh, on the ground here. And so the, the answer from the, the airfields, from the training camps out in Western England, uh, the answer would be that uh, the units maintained an ability to drive trucks around and to transport those human remains to the morgue, to the mortuary affairs that existed here in the uh, Cambridge temporary military cemetery and at the one at Brookwood American Cemetery, which is our World War I cemetery in um, Surrey. And so back in in this area, behind the lines, it was a little bit more uh, controlled and administrative. Um, Still a terrible, tragic situation for everyone involved, but uh, much more of a controlled situation. If you were in France, uh, such as what we saw in Band of Brothers, uh, you would uh, be controlled by the, the quartermaster units that were constructing temporary cemeteries all throughout the uh, battlefields wherever Americans were operating. They virtually followed the frontline trace of the American and Allied forces as we invaded the continent in, in Normandy and then broke out and spread out across France and pushed out to the uh, the German frontier. 
sadly and unfortunately, we had to create Army Graves registration companies to follow along the frontline troops, specifically to take care of those casualties and to mark them, to administratively keep up with the locations and the names, and to establish good accountability for those remains. How many of those men ended up at Cambridge? So here in the, um, in, in the, in the United Kingdom, behind the lines, the, the U.S. actually ran three different temporary cemeteries. I've got to start uh, by answering this way. So in the U.K., the, the U.S. military forces ran three different temporary cemeteries. first one was established in Northern Ireland, a site called Lisnabrini. And it was largely servicing a U.S. naval installation there right outside of Belfast. And uh, when U.S. Navy forces would come in and they had casualties on board their ships, many of these sailors and even Army soldiers, if it happened this way, would be interred there. Otherwise, over here in England, we had Brookwood American Cemetery, which was a World War I American cemetery that commemorates those forces that integrated with the British troops in World War I. But during World War II, we used the terrain of that cemetery as a temporary holding place for our casualties. And from 1942 and 1943, if you were uh, killed in action and you were located here in England, the chances were you were going to Brookwood. Then on the anniversary of Pearl Harbor, that is December 7th, 1943, we opened Cambridge Temporary Cemetery here uh, in the western side of Cambridge, uh, on the very terrain that we're uh, located today. And all of those airfields in East Anglia that serviced American forces, those casualties that came back to those airfields would then be transported here. To answer your question about numbers, we don't know exactly, but it would have been in the range of 10,000 human remains that were uh, cared for by Uh, the U.S. Army and the Quartermaster Corps. It is mind-blowing how many Americans died in the Second World War. The visitors that you receive, what brings them to you? Do you have relatives that have come over from uh, America or is it history buffs or is it people just looking for a nice walk? Yeah, that's a great question, Hannah. And in fact, we get uh, people from all walks of life that come in here for all different motivations. We do get the, the family that just looks for a nice, clean, safe, green space to, to take a walk. But we also get Americans that are coming over to visit a loved one, a, a father, a mother who uh, lost their life in the war. Uh, we get the full spectrum. We get a lot of British people. We get a lot of Third Nation that come in to pay respects, to uh, think a bit about history. We get people that wander in and they're not sure why they're wandering in. They just know that it's got the name American on it. And, well, maybe that's something they need to go check out. We kind of target those people for our tours. Small staff that works here, we keep our eyes out for people who um, are given the impression that they they maybe don't know exactly what it is they're seeing or Mm. why they're they're seeing it. And we, we seek them out and we explain to them what it is that we're doing and why it's important to remember the, uh, the stories, the individuals who, who lost their lives uh, in order to gain us our freedom that we enjoy today. Yeah, and I, I have to say, every single time I've been there, one of you guys has appeared as if out of nowhere, 
and regaled me with some interesting facts. Um, <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. That's good. Yeah, it'd be great if you could. One of you could just follow me around generally in life and point out interesting things to me because uh, <laughs> it's really good. But one of the most interesting things I think is that you are not just about the past, in as much as you have a wall of the missing, and there are little points on there which suggests that people are no longer missing. So the kind of discovery of American servicemen's the remains continues, doesn't it? It does. And in fact, uh, the U.S. Department of Defense has a, has a small agency uh, that works directly for the Secretary of Defense, and it's a, a defense agency that we call the Defense POW-MIA Accounting Agency. And this agency is tasked with performing field recoveries and uh, genealogical uh, research and uh, a lot of times uh, forensic laboratory research on human remains to determine the identity of the, uh, of the human remains and then to uh, make a full accountability of them in our, in our system so that we don't leave any of our American soldiers you know, missing forever. Uh, and the other part of that is we're able to return to the families and to give them an accounting of what's happened to their loved ones. And 75 years on, you might think that that's a, uh, a question that we've all put behind us. Mm. But for those family members that have lost a brother or a father, we are still providing closure to them all these decades later. But if there's someone alive who remembers that person, or actually if there's somebody alive who remembers someone who was affected by the loss of that person, I think that's still a really important thing to do. If your mother lost her father, I, th I feel like it's still something that's going to impact on you. You're absolutely right. And, and really, that's where of the visitors we have that still have a firsthand connection with that generation. Frankly, that's where we're going is we're uh, having uh, children grandchildren and now even great-grandchildren and they may not have known the soldier but they have remembered how their uncle was affected for the rest of his life yeah. uh, by the loss of a brother for example yeah yeah on the subject of uh, being dragged to um, morbid places my late father God rest his soul, loved to take us to the graves of dead celebrities, not just to their graves, but to the uh, site of their um, demise. Wow. So, uh, yeah, so we've had a look at the place where Eddie Cochran was killed. <laughs> <laughs> that little bit of roadside. I think we had a look at, um, I think, where T.E. Lawrence met his maker as well. So, yeah, that was our family holidays as a kid. Lovely. Nice. The good news is, Paul, for those who like a bit of maybe a morbid story, we've actually got more of that interview coming up because um, I cut it in half because it was really long and quite interesting. So there'll be more of that coming up in the future. Good, good stuff. So next week we're going to be looking at, surprise, surprise, episode four of Band of <laughs> Brothers, Replacements, which yes. is about Operation Market Garden. It which, is. Um, if, if you know your history, you will know it's not nearly as twee and pleasant as it sounds. <laughs> yeah, and it didn't exactly go right. Again, I don't feel like that's a spoiler. And I have a little chat with our fave historian about why that was. Go on, say his name. You can say his name. James Holland. I'm glad you've come to terms with this now, Paul. <laughs> Uh, 
You've been listening to What Are You Making Me Watch, which is written, produced and edited by Hannah Dunleavy and Paul Kirkley. Our theme tune, Silver and Gold, is from Audio Hub. You can follow us on Twitter at Make Me Watch Pod, or you can follow Paul where he is at PR Kirkley. The rest of the time he can be found on the pages of Waitrose Weekend, Classic Pop and Doctor Who magazine, among many other things. Among several other things. He's also written two books about Doctor Who. What are they called, mate? They're called um, Space Helmet for a Cow 1 and Space Helmet for a Cow 2. <laughs> two, two space, two cow. <laughs> yeah, two helmets. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find Hannah on Twitter at that Dunleavy or in her day job talking about women's rights and a lot more besides at the Standard Issue podcast. Thanks for listening.